You see, the world in which we live defines love in, a, in numerous ways. But I think you'll find something different in Second John. And let's look at it together. It says, The elder, which is John, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and is the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have very much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And the children of your elect sister greet you. There are two major themes in Second John. The two, theme, two themes seem to be encouragement in the first part and warning in the second part. Overall, hopefully it'll be a chance for us to really ask ourselves and ask the scriptures too uh, some serious questions. There are lots of questions as I've read through this numerous times over the past months actually. Not just in preparation for this, but it's a, it's a great letter to understand more about the basic, the foundational truths of the scriptures. It's interesting that we have encouragement and warning as two major themes because he's talking to those people who are walking in the truth. I'm going to make the assumption that we're walking in the truth, we're living in the truth. We all need to be encouraged. At the same time, we all need to be warned, too. Because we spend six days in the world in which we live. A world that is not really all that favorable toward God and the truth of the Scriptures. Certainly not favorable toward absolute truth. What's truth? And as we've seen, what's love? So we need to be encouraged... Our thinking needs to be challenged, and we need to heed the warnings that John gives to his readers as well. And I'm trusting that at the very least, the next two weeks, this will be an encouragement to you as well as a time to cause you to think. If you leave here and you have to think, then I've done my job. If you leave here and you don't have to think, then something's missing. I haven't done, I haven't done my job. 
So hopefully you're prepared to think about your own life and your commitment to the truth. Because if you're committed to the truth and you're convinced that the truth really is the truth, love flows from that. And I'd encourage you to read 2 John several times with a pen and a piece of paper. And as you read through it, ask yourself questions as you read the text. There are lots of questions you should ask yourself. I have a whole list of questions. We won't even address many of them here. About my own life, about my own commitment, about my own conduct. So hopefully you will do the same as well. Our focus today will be on verses 1 through 6, and then next week we'll we'll focus on verses 7 through 13. It's unfortunate we have to split it up. But if we didn't split it up, you'd be here way longer than you want to be. And it's, it's not really, it's, it's kind of expository, but we're not taking, and we're not, we're not squeezing all the truth out of this passage of Scripture. So it's more like a survey. We're hitting the high spots, at least the high spots that I think are, are worthy of being highlighted for us to think about it. But remember, there's way more here than we're going to be able to touch on in the next two weeks. So we need to define some terms here. At least we're going to be focusing on the first six verses, verses, as I've mentioned. We need to define some terms in order for us to fully understand what he's talking about. And def- definition of, your, of terminology is crucial to your interpreting, properly interpreting the Scriptures. So when you read the Bible, don't take it for granted that you understand the definition of a particular word. Look it up. Uh, If nothing else, look it up in Webster's. That gives you a pretty good idea. But biblically, it's even better to have a a Bible dictionary to look it up as well. So defining our term. In In the first verse, it talks about the chosen lady or the lady who is elect. And in verse 13, it talks about the cho- her chosen or elect sister. Well, who are these people? Well, there's no clear definition in the text. We really don't know. It may refer to an actual lady that John knew and her family, which is also known by John. Or, and this is more in line with what I think is true, based on what the text says, that it's probably a local church and those who attend the local church in the feminine and the, and the children are the ones who are attending the local church. Now remember, the churches in that time, in the first century, were pretty small. A lot smaller than this. Because where did they meet? In homes. And folks, they didn't have 4,000 square foot homes. They're pretty tiny. So they knew each other very, very well. Now, we need to understand that because there are some things in this, in this passage, in this letter, that would cause us to really focus on the fact that relationships being established, these people knew each other, they knew their behavior, they knew what they believed to be true. And we'll see that again in, in, in verse 4. So we don't know for sure. Truth, five times in this little passage. In fact, truth is so important to John, the apostle. He uses it 38 times in his writings. This is one of his passions, the truth. And he does a pretty good job. So the truth, John loves the elect lady and her children in the truth. And it's personified, the truth being within us. John, all who know the truth, all all the believers know the truth and they love. Because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. 
So truth is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. It implies his physical presence in a human, in a human body, which is denied by the false teachers. We'll look at that next week. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And also in John 14, it says, The Spirit of truth, the counselor, the comforter, will be with us, the disciples, forever. So the truth will be with us forever. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and indwells all who follow him. Now, that should cause you to ask a question. Cause me to ask a question. So let me pose the question to you that it posed to me. Where is truth in relationship to me? Where is Christ in relationship to me? Do I have the confidence that he abides in me, comes alive in me, and he's going to be there forever? Because I've placed my trust in him. Is there evidence? This is even a more convicting truth for me. Is there evidence to show that the truth lives in me? Is there evidence in your life that the truth lives in you? And what is that evidence? Well, according to the text, it's how you show love. Which is our next thing we need to define is what love really is. What is it? The beetle says it's all I need. But what is it? Well, four times in the passage we find love. Love is, it says in verse 6, is the fulfilling of the law, to live according to his command. There's an obedience involved in loving other people and loving God. If you love me, you will obey me. It's unconditional. It's not based on situations. It's not based on circumstances. It goes beyond that. It's active. It's not passive. It supersedes my emotions. It's not emotional. It's my response to God's action, what God did for me. It mirrors the selfless love of God. It's the fruit of His Spirit. It's impossible to exhibit the fruit of God's Spirit apart from Christ's enablement. You can't do it on your own. You can try, and you can actually uh, imitate it, but it's not going to last, folks. just won't last. It endures. It perseveres. It reflects commitment and a transformed life. Another term or phrase, actually, that we need to define is grace, peace, uh, grace mercy, and love. And, and peace, rather. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, in most of the letters in the New Testament... We have something in the salutation and introduction that talks about grace and mercy. But there are only two, or actually three letters in the New Testament where it talks about grace, peace, or grace, mercy, and peace. Those three together. So one of them is here in Second John. The other two are in First and Second Timothy. Only, only three places. The rest of them leave out one of, the, one of the three. Well, what does it mean 
Here, it's experiential. It's not just a a matter of being a part of the introduction. It's experiential. Are you experiencing God's grace? Have you and are you experiencing God's mercy? Are you experiencing God's peace? Well, what does it mean? Grace is his undeserved favor. It's a gift of God. It's God's provision, not because of anything that I have done. And it provides direction when I'm at loose ends. And when comfort is needed during hard times. God, it says in 2 Peter 1, it says, He has provided us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Christ. Everything you need for life? Do you really believe that? That's grace. And it comes from Him. Mercy. I once was dead spiritually and now I'm alive. He gave me life when I was miserable in His eyes. I was, I was determined, I was deserving of death, spiritual death, the wrath of God because I was in opposition to God. I didn't even know it that I was in opposition to God. But in His mercy, He took pity on me and He gave me life. Just the fact that Jesus went to the cross is evidence of God's, not only God's love and his grace, but his mercy. He died in my place. We sang about it this morning. And he's given me new life. And in exchange for taking my sin, he gave me righteousness, purity. So it raises another question. How does God view you? How would God describe you? Think about it. Does he describe you as righteous? Would he describe you as holy? Would he describe you as a saint? What do you think? You see, it all depends on what you believe to be true about what happened at the cross. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you see, God sees you as through Christ. Just as God sent Christ, just as God sent the apostles, just as God sent the disciples, the larger number, So he sent you. He set you and me as apart. That's what it means to be a saint, to be holy, to be set apart. You say, yeah, but I'm not perfect. Really? I'm not either. Ask my wife. But that doesn't mean I haven't been set apart, you see. I'm a child of God in the process of becoming a mature believer to become Christ-like. God is my parent, my spiritual parent. He'll parent, he'll parent me. The result of God's grace and the result of his mercy gives me right standing, peace, reconciliation between me and God. There's nothing, there's no barrier between me and God now. Christ on the cross is the one who provides the way for me to have a personal relationship with God the Father. No hindrance. I'm free. 
And you're free as well. So that's grace. There's some definitions, rather. And then we have one last one, and it's the commandments. The commandments are things that are spoken by God, written by God, summed up by Christ. They are spiritual in nature, and the, com- and the commandments implies the need for me to obey. Let's take a closer look at verses 1 through 6. The first three verses is basically an introduction, and then verses 4 through 6 begins the body of the letter, what he truly intends to communicate. In verses 1 and 2, John says about the lady and her children who are chosen or elected by God. Now, that should cause you to raise a question too. It raises a question in my mind. Okay, if some are elected, then, who, then some aren't, right? Is that correct? If some are chosen, some aren't. Does that create a problem for you? Well, that's not fair. But at the same time, in Peter, it says, God doesn't desire that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But God chooses some, he doesn't choose others. Well, let's, let's think about this. God is the one who has mercy upon whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. The nation of Israel was chosen over a whole bunch of other nations. David was chosen over his brothers. Jacob was chosen, chosen over Esau. How about Moses? How about Isaiah? Isaiah? How about Jeremiah? How about Gideon? How about the apostles? How about you? How about me? Who's in charge? Whose plan is it? Whose world is it? It's his. Whose mission is it? Whose purpose in life is it? It's his, not mine. I didn't make it up. He did. And yet, through this whole thing, if you take a look at the character of God, this is so very, very important. Whatever you believe about Scripture, you must believe the truth about how God has revealed himself to you in the Scripture. God is love. He's not a hateful God. He will not violate his nature. He will not violate his character. The bottom line is, we're part of God's creation, not man's creation. This is my Father's world. So John loves this lady and her children in the truth. And he says, not only I, but also who, all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. All I need, the beetle says, all I need is love. I don't know. All I need is God. That's the truth. Because God is love. And he's given me fullness in Christ. It's not possible for us to love unconditionally on our own. I have to, I need to, I am totally dependent upon his enablement, upon his grace and his power. Romans 8 says this, It's not possible for those controlled by self, the selfish nature, the sinful nature, to please God. It's impossible to do it. You can try. Just like the Old Testament, people tried to obey the law, and they couldn't do it. That's why they had the sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again, because it simply showed them their sin. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. 
So basically, in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It implies the unity of the body of Christ. It says, All who love Christ love the select lady and her children. So CTK is just a part of the body of Christ. And if you claim to know Christ... And you are brothers and sisters with other people who in other churches who claim to know, profess to know Jesus Christ as well. It implies unity in the body. implies relationships are established. I talked with a man, oh, it's been a few weeks ago, professing Christian, and he floats. He's a floater. He goes from church to church to church to church to church. doesn't have a home church. And I'm wondering, what's the deal? You're just kind of spreading the blessing around? Is that the deal? Like you're a big blessing, you want to spread it around? There's no commitment on his part. He can't participate. He doesn't understand about gifting and the need to apply that gift in the context of a local assembly. He's doing church. But he's not being the church. You've got on your wall out here, as I walked in, on the wall, it says, love one another. Great. Very biblical. There's a commitment attached to that in order to see it take place. Love can only be known from the actions that it prompts. It has to be evident. Just as God's love for us was evidenced when he sent Jesus to the cross, for God so loved the world that he gave. Same is true for us as well. If you have a relationship with God as one of his children, you'll love him and you'll also love others. It takes precedence over everything else about us. It's not automatic. But being a believer, now you have a choice to love or not love. Before I became a Christian, my love was conditional. It wasn't in spite of, it was because of. Because you're nice to me. Circumstantial. It doesn't matter how much you know, but what you do with what you know. And before salvation, I was a slave to sin. I was totally self-centered. You can't believe that about me, really. If you knew me, you'd say, oh, Don's really a nice guy. But I was selfish, self-centered. Did I love myself? You bet I did. After salvation, after I came to know Christ as Savior, things changed. It wasn't about me anymore. It wasn't about my job anymore. It wasn't about my, my reputation anymore. It wasn't, love wasn't circumstantial anymore. It wasn't based on what you did. You see, if you don't have a transformed life, a changed life, 
you will never have the ability to love others the way God loves us. It's just not going to happen. Now we come to the body of the letter in verse 4. It says, this one really causes, caused me to uh, cause questions to come up in my mind. It says this. It gives John great joy to find some of the lady's children walking and living in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Now remember, this is a small church. The one word in that verse that troubles me, that raises questions, is some. It it gives me great joy to find some. Some. That means it wasn't a perfect family. Now that word some is not found in all translations, but I find it to be very reasonable. Some, not living the truth, not being obedient to the command to love people, to love other people, it's possible that these some were, uh, weren't even believers. Maybe they were sincere in doing church, thinking that just being there, being present, was enough to please God. I call it doing church. Reading, I've read my Bible, I've read my devotional, I go, I go to church every Sunday. But I don't have a personal relationship with God. I don't have any hope of eternal salvation. I lack assurance of my salvation. That may describe the sum. Some could also be looked upon from Matthew 13's perspective, the parable of the weeds. Their actions indicate that they were professors of professing to be Christians, but they really weren't. And I'm wondering, is it possible that that is true in churches today? You see, folks, I was in a church for a number of years with my wife and my young family, and I wasn't a believer. I thought that doing church was all that was needed. I was there faithfully almost every Sunday whenever I was available. I even went with the pastor to, on visitation. I even spoke from the pulpit on a given Sunday morning. I gave communion meditation. I knew all there was to know. All. I knew all the answers. But I wasn't a Christian. I was, I was part of the some who weren't. I was a professing Christian. If you asked me if I was a Christian, I'd say, sure. But if you asked me about my assurance of salvation, I would have said, maybe. You see, if you're doing church, when have you done enough? You don't know. You just keep working at it. So I was sincere, I was a deceived pretender doing church. The reason that John's letter, first John's, John's first letter was written, was written to believers who lacked assurance of salvation. You read 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, and you'll see that he's talking about that. 
give assurance to those who are truly believers, conviction to those who are pretenders. There are a lot of tests in John's first letter. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. And in the parable of the weeds, Jesus says, and, and don't try and pull up the weeds because you'll disrupt the true wheat. No, you let the weeds stay. Let the judgment play the role of pulling up the weeds. And you'll gather the weeds together and put them in a pile and burn them. It's possible, you see, for the weeds or those pretenders, even though they're sincere, that they're just doing church. It's possible that they'll learn from those who are experiencing God's presence in their lives, who are the true seed, the true followers of Christ, the true children of Christ, those who are exhibiting love for God and love for one another. Those who aren't believers, even in this group, if you're walking with Christ, you're an example. You're a magnet. Can't help but be noticed. So truth must be evident. Truth living in us in the context of the first six verses is truth living in us. It should be evident. First John chapters 2, verse 6, it says, If I am a Christian, I should walk. I should live as Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? He lived a life of love. Living in the truth is submission to God's commands. It should be evident that I am obedient to God's commands. In the context of verses 5, It says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. He doesn't tell us when the beginning is. When's the beginning? Is it Jesus' ministry? Is that the beginning? Jesus certainly talked about love, didn't he? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And people will know you're my disciples if you love one another, right? Does it go beyond that? The problem with those not living in the truth or not living in love, and there's a diagram that's going to be coming up on the screen here in a little bit, says the problem is not the walk. The problem is what you believe to be true. I, I, uh, Jim and you folks have seen this numerous times. Mark, you have too. And my wife has seen it even more times than that. Yeah. Folks, I hope this is burned into your mind. Let me explain it briefly. What you believe to be true about God as revealed in the scripture, Christ, God incarnate, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, what you believe to be true about who He is, what He's done, what He's promised, and who you are as a result of all that He's said and all that He's done on the cross, and what His mission for you in this life is, not what you think it is, but what His mission is for you. You see, that will all come, become uh, revealed through your behavior. Now, if you take those first three things, God, who God is, who you are, and His mission, if you believe the truth about those three things, they'll never change. 
Those three things never change. Your behavior will show it. However, if you believe a lie, the smallest of lies about who God is, or about who you are, or about His mission for you in this life, your behavior will show it. Behavior is never, ever a person's problem. The behavior of the, quote-unquote, the some who aren't walking in truth, in 2 John chapter 4, I find it great joy to find some of your children walking in truth, implying that some weren't. Well, the some that weren't, you see, behavior is not their problem. It's what they believe to be true. And the same is true for us here, too. And when does this growth pattern stop? It doesn't. Philippians says, in Philippians 1, verse 6, it says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, when's the day of Christ Jesus for you? I don't, I don't know when it is for me. And you don't know when it is for you either. It may be today, it may be tomorrow, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 50 years from now. You don't know. So growth and understanding of who God is and what his plan is for my life is progressive. But I need to trust him there. So there we have it. They have been, there have been those who have been deceived. The sum in the, in the, he's talking about have been deceived into believing that there's someone that they really aren't. And here we must take a look at grace and law. From the beginning. The beginning. When were these commands given? With the, we start with the present text. It doesn't tell us really here. But in 1 John chapter 2, he says basically the same thing in verse 7 of chapter 2. Writing you an old command that you have had since the beginning you have heard. John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. There it is in the Gospel of John. In chapter 14, verse 21, it says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Same in verse 6. This is your command that you walk in love. But we have to focus on the fact, not on the commands, but focus on love. If you focus on the commands, pretty soon you're going to do things. It's not doing. It's trusting the one who loves you. We find the same thing in Matthew chapter 22. We looked at it before. The command to love the Lord your God with your whole being and love one another as yourself. On these things, on these two, hang all the law and the prophets. So there we see the law. So there's something about the law. John Calvin said, It's God intended nothing else by all his commandments than to teach us the duty of love. By all of God's commandments, he's saying, he's showing us the duty to love. All his commandments? Even the Ten Commandments? Yes. Even the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, the first four commandments focus on loving God. Commandments 5 through 10 focus on loving others. Love the Lord your God with your whole being. The second commandment just like it. Love one another as you love yourself. Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments in those two. You see, the law is a mirror showing us what, we're, what God is really like and what we're really like. 
If I try to be perfect, I'll find out that I can't do it. The law continues to show me my faults. also shows me the need that I have for a Savior. Because anyone who violates the least of these laws is condemned, basically. That's why they had those sacrifices all the time. The law also restrains evil, provides boundaries for life. The law also reveals what's pleasing to God and what offends Him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled the law. So guess what? When you invite Christ to be your Savior... When you trust him to be your savior, you're inviting the one who fulfilled the law into your life. It enables you to do what Christ did. In fact, in John chapter 14, I think it's verse 15, he says, and he says to his disciples, he says, the things that you've seen me doing, you'll be able to do all these things and even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Really? Yeah. That means we have the ability and the power to love other people. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And he says, let no debt outstanding remain. The law, you see, is an act of God's grace. There are people who say, well, yeah, but the law is antiquated. It's it's old. It's outdated. It's no longer relevant. Just grace. I'll live by grace alone. Folks, that's that's a big lie. Every good gift comes from God above. That includes the law. Law is a part of God's grace. It is gifted to us to show us to be our guide to salvation. It's not meant to be our salvation. It's to show us our need for salvation. It's a gift of God. I owe him my life. And going on, you see, there can't be two two people in charge of your life. There can't be two sovereigns. One has to give. One will receive devotion. One will be despised. One is authentic and one is a pretender. One is a violation of the first commandment, nor their gods before me. I alone am omnipresent. My wife and I ride a tandem bicycle. Some of you know that. And if my wife, who is, there are two positions on a tandem bicycle. One is in front, we call that person the captain, and the one behind is called the stoker, the one who provides all the power to pedal this bike. If she tries to be in control, we're in trouble. If she tries to steer from behind, we're in trouble. That bike's all over the place. We'll crash and burn. There can only be one person in charge of giving direction to that bike. That's the person who's steering the bike. There can't be two sovereigns. Only one. Question rises, who's in charge of your life? Who's the captain of your ship? Good question. 
convicting question. And how do I know what sin is? Well, the law reveals it. Go back to the law. Are you, are you fulfilling the law because of Christ in you, enabling you to fulfill the law? In this particular passage of Scripture, what role does the commandment of God play in the lives of believers? Folks, I think it has, goes back to verse 4. How do we love the some who are not walking in truth? How do we do that? Do you really love them enough to confront them with the truth? Galatians 6 says, You who are spiritual should restore the one who has gotten off the beaten path, who has deviated from the truth. It's my responsibility. It means there's a relationship established there. Do I love them enough to reach out and remind them of the truth? Would you want someone to do that for you? Are you living in submission to the truth? Is it evident by the way you love other people? Are you walking in love? Is it evident in your marriage, if you're married? Is it evident in your family? Is it evident in your church? It's one thing to have love one another on a wall. That's easy. That requires paint and some patience and some time and someone with a giving heart. It's a little different when you live it out. It can only happen if you profess Christ to be your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray.